Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, chapter 24. We read with great interest in the previous chapter, as the Savior commended the words of Isaiah to the people that were assembled before him on this, the second day of his visit as the resurrected Lord. And, of course, we read his unmistakable command, yea, a commandment I give unto you, he said in the opening verse of the previous chapter, to search these things diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah. As we read this command, I think we get the unmistakable sense that it applies directly to us, that the onus rests upon us, readers of the latter days, to search these things diligently, even though it was issued originally to the people that were assembled before the Savior on this occasion. And this, of course, is because we are living in the final dispensation that was undoubtedly envisioned by the prophets that the Savior has quoted from thus far in his sermon. In 3 Nephi chapter 15, the Savior referenced Moses when he said in verse 23, Behold, I am he of whom Moses spake, saying, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. He referenced Micah when he spoke in chapter 21, verse 12, of my people who are a remnant of Jacob, who shall be among the Gentiles, yea, in the midst of them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down, and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. And, as we have most recently and dramatically seen, the Savior has quoted extensively from the writings of Isaiah in order to describe the destiny of Israel in this sermon. Now, For the last two full chapters of this great sermon on the second day, Jesus will call upon another ancient prophet to establish the veracity of his message. Third Nephi chapters 24 and 25 will correspond to the two final chapters in the Old Testament, Malachi chapters 3 and 4, writings that were added to that volume long after Lehi and Mulek's departure from Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian captivity. As the Book of Mormon Institute manual tells us, the importance of Malachi's prophecies was emphasized by the Savior, who quoted a portion of his words to the people in America as directed by the Father. Who was the prophet Malachi? Malachi was an Old Testament prophet who wrote and prophesied at approximately 430 B.C. Malachi means my messenger, and the first part of his prophecy is addressed to the priesthood, reproving them for their neglect of service to God. The second part of Malachi is addressed to the people, speaking against marriage outside the covenant, divorces from wives within the covenant, and neglect of tithe paying. The faithful are encouraged to remain so, with the assurance that the Lord is mindful of them, and the disobedient shall fail in the day of the Lord's coming. The latter part of Malachi's message declares the blessings that come from obeying the law of tithing, and the special role the prophet Elijah would play in the last days in preparation for the second coming. And, as McConkie and Millet have written, the prophecies of Malachi were given approximately 400 B.C., almost two centuries after Lehi left Jerusalem. These prophecies were considered so significant that the Father commanded them that they be included in the Nephite scriptures. Just as the Savior quoted from Isaiah and Malachi, so did Moroni quote from them, as he counseled Joseph Smith concerning the work of the Restoration. This demonstrates the significance of these prophecies about the work of the last days in preparation for the Savior's second coming. So, we will look forward to the teachings that come from this part of the Savior's sermon 
as we hear from Malachi, God's messenger. Let's look now at the structure of this chapter of 3 Nephi chapter 24, which again is a quotation of Malachi chapter 3. It's 18 verses long, and we can see in the opening verse that the Savior will tell his disciples to dictate the words of Malachi as he speaks them, and then he will expound them. For the remainder of verse 1, and extending through verse 6, we will learn immediately about a messenger. In fact, the word suddenly is used at the end of verse 1, that a messenger will suddenly come to his temple. So, this is when Malachi's words, as spoken by the Savior, begin in this section. And again, we see that a messenger will precede the coming of the messenger of the covenant, who is Christ. And the efficacy of ordinances will return once this messenger returns, and work among the remnant of Jacob will then commence. We can really see immediately then how these teachings tie in with the things that the Savior has taught so far in this third or moral sermon that began in 3 Nephi chapter 20. In verse 7, and then extending through the remainder of the chapter, through verse 18, we will read of the way in which Zion will be redeemed and restored. We will read of blessings that come through the windows of heaven, as verse 10 will say, and that all nations shall call Zion blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, as we'll read in verse 12. And as we come into verse 17 of this chapter, we are reminded of Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 54, as it was just recently quoted, when he said in verses 11 and 12, Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. And this is because Malachi will say in chapter 17, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. Well, with that introduction and overview in place, let's return to verse 1 for a reading. Before beginning verse 1, let's remember that the Savior has been meeting with his disciples. He asked Nephi to bring the record to him. He surveyed the record, looked for omissions, and did indeed find one with respect to Samuel's prophecy uh, of the way in which saints would arise from the dead and minister unto many. So the Savior is in the act of surveying the word and making sure that it is complete. In this effort, then, he moves into verse 1 of this chapter and talks to them about including the words of Malachi in their record. Verse 1, And it came to pass that he commanded them that they should write the words which the Father had given unto Malachi, which he should tell unto them. So again, in addition to correcting the omission from Samuel's record, he also wants them to add these two chapters from Malachi. And it came to pass that after they were written, he expounded them. And these are the words which he did tell unto them, saying, Thus said the Father unto Malachi. So all that we have read so far in this verse, of course, is unique to 3 Nephi. And then the remainder of verse 1 will read just like Malachi chapter 3. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. I think the use of the word suddenly is really striking to us as readers, especially in this context of 3 Nephi, where the resurrected Lord comes and goes among the people. Let's appeal to some commentary for a moment as we consider the identity of this messenger and also the way in which the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. The Institute Manual says Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught that one reason for a repeated reading of the Scriptures is that many of the prophecies and doctrinal passages in the Scriptures have multiple meanings and multiple fulfillments, something, of course, we spoke of earlier with Isaiah. Such is the case with the phrase, The Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. It was partially fulfilled when the Lord appeared in the Kirtland Temple on April 3rd of 1836 at the beginning of this dispensation. That, of course, is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 110, verses 1 through 10. It is partially fulfilled each time the Savior comes to any of his temples. It will also be partially fulfilled as part of the second coming, when the earth will be cleansed from wickedness and become a celestial abode. Hence, the earth will be appropriately referred to as a temple of the Lord. 
Ogden and Skinner have written, The prophet's name was also his message. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And they're saying, of course, that Malachi means my messenger. The words my messenger are in Hebrew, Malachi. And who would the messenger be? Again, we have multiple fulfillments of prophecy. John the Baptist was a messenger who prepared the way before the Lord. Elijah also prepared the way before the Lord, as Malachi himself would so plainly prophesy. Joseph Smith was one of the greatest messengers preparing the way of the Lord, and the gospel itself has been a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. Jesus Christ, of course, was the messenger of the covenant in whom we certainly delight. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Here is another unequivocal sign of the Lord's coming. He will come to his temple. But which temple? He did come to the Kirtland temple, but he will come again to the house of the Lord in the New Jerusalem and in the Old Jerusalem. Here is commentary from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland from his book Christ and the New Covenant, which overlaps with teachings that we have just read, uh, but that also reinforces the identity of the Savior, or Christ, as the messenger of the covenant. He says, Christ, who is the great messenger of the covenant, did come to the first temple in this dispensation in Kirtland, Ohio, on April 3rd of 1836. He has, of course, come to other temples and will yet do so particularly in Jerusalem and Jackson County, Missouri, as part of the culmination of his majestic second coming. Now, as verse 1 has led us to consider the coming of this messenger, which precedes the coming of the messenger of the covenant, even Christ, verse 2 says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Although it is not explicitly stated in this verse, I think it's implied that when the Savior appears, uh, those to whom he appear tend to fall upon their knees. And we have certainly seen that in this third Nephi account. Who shall stand when he appeareth? The primary meaning of the word stand in this verse, however, seems to be tied to the word withstand. Ogden and Skinner have written, Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? This parallel couplet contains a significant question. Who will be able to survive that day when the harvest will have been gathered and the field will be burned? In that day, all telestial people and things will be removed from this planet, and the earth will shift up to a terrestrial or paradisiacal condition. There will be a great cleansing. The Lord and his tens of thousands of holy ones will be like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. Fire and soap are two well-known cleansing agents. Those who are clean will abide the day of cleansing. White Brewster has explained, Anciently, a fuller was one who cleansed and whitened garments. The process of fulfilling or cleansing clothes consisted in treading or stamping on the garments with the feet or with bats in tubs of water, in which some alkaline substance answering the purpose of soap had been dissolved. Christ's blood is the only fuller soap strong enough to remove all stains of sin from those who repent and fully accept his atoning sacrifice. However, the blood of Christ will have no cleansing effect upon the wicked, for the stain of sin shall remain on their garments. And finally, here's something from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Malachi employed powerful symbolism by describing the Messiah's coming like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. A refiner is a man who separates the precious metals from the dross, which in nature they are usually found mixed. Part of the process consists in the application of great heat in order to bring the mass into a fluid state, hence the term refiner's fire. That's actually found under Bible Dictionary, or found under the entry refiner in the Bible Dictionary. The Savior is like a refiner. Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained, His mission is to cleanse, purify, and refine the human soul so that it can return to his Father's kingdom in purity, free from dross. His cleansing power is like a refiner's fire, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver in that great day when he comes to judge the world. A fuller's work was to cleanse garments and whiten them through the use of soap. The atonement of Jesus Christ acts like fuller's soap to cleanse us from our sins and prepare us to stand pure and spotless before the judgment seat. 
verse 3, and again, we're reading about a messenger that will arrive that will precede the coming of the messenger of the covenant. And the messenger of the covenant will have the effect that we're reading of here. So verse 3, and he shall sit, meaning, and the messenger of the covenant, Christ, shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This statement about the sons of Levi and their offering in righteousness also comes up in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we wonder as to its meaning. Ogden and Skinner have written, The sons of Levi will yet offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Does that mean that blood sacrifices of animals will be reinstituted? We do know that the sacrificial shedding of the blood of animals, symbolic of the great sacrifice involving the shedding of the Savior's blood, was part of the proper worship of God since the beginning. The practice will be resumed, but for how long? President Joseph Fielding Smith wrote, Blood sacrifices will be performed long enough to complete the fullness of the restoration in this dispensation. Afterwards, sacrifice will be of some other character. Now here's an expansion of that same statement by Joseph Fielding Smith out of Doctrines of Salvation. He said, We are living in the dispensation of the fullness of times, into which all things are to be gathered, and all things are to be restored since the beginning. Even this earth is to be restored to the condition which prevailed before Adam's transgression. Now, in the nature of things, the law of sacrifice will have to be restored. It will be necessary, therefore, for the sons of Levi, who offered blood sacrifices anciently in Israel, to offer such a sacrifice again, to round out and complete this ordinance in this dispensation. Sacrifice by the shedding of blood was instituted in the days of Adam and of necessity will have to be restored. Blood sacrifices will be performed long enough to complete the fullness of the restoration of this dispensation. Afterwards, sacrifice will be of some other character. Now finally, on this same subject, we can read the words of Joseph Smith, and these can be found in the Doctrine and Covenant Student Manual. It is generally supposed that sacrifice was entirely done away when the great sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, was offered up, and that there will be no necessity for the ordinance of sacrifice in the future. But those who assert this are certainly not acquainted with the duties, privileges, and authority of the priesthood, or with the prophets. The offering of sacrifice has ever been connected and forms a part of the duties of the priesthood. It began with the priesthood, and will be continued until after the coming of Christ from generation to generation. These sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord shall be built and the sons of Levi be purified, be fully restored and attended to in all their powers, ramifications, and blessings. This ever did and ever will exist when the powers of the Melchizedek priesthood are sufficiently manifest, Else how can the restitution of all things spoken of by the holy prophets be brought to pass? It is not to be understood that the law of Moses will be established again with all its rites and variety of ceremonies. This has never been spoken of by the prophets. But those things which existed prior to Moses' day, namely sacrifice, will be continued. Verse 4, and this verse begins with the word when, giving us a sense of sequence. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. When we think of a pleasant offering unto the Lord, we certainly think of offerings that are done in righteousness and through proper authority. Malachi was certainly acutely aware of that need during his time. Verse 5, And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. This verse also would have seemed relevant to Malachi's contemporaries as he spoke of sorcerers and adulterers and false swearers. So while Malachi is not as explicit as Moroni will later be when he says, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me and I know your doings, he still is clearly speaking to the latter days as well. A critical part of Malachi's grievance here is the way in which his contemporaries and those in the future are turning away from the true gospel because they are oppressing the hireling in his wages, the widow, 
and the fatherless and turning aside the stranger. This is a problem that Malachi will rectify in just a few verses later with his discussion of tithing, and of course is rectified more broadly with the concept of the law of consecration. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, God holds us accountable for our neglect of the widows and the fatherless. President Thomas S. Monson expressed how important widows are to the Lord and our need to minister to them. The word widow appears to have had a most significant meaning to our Lord, President Monson says. He cautioned his disciples to beware of the example of the scribes, who feigned righteousness by their long apparel and their lengthy prayers, but who devoured the houses of widows. And to the prophet Joseph Smith he declared, The storehouse shall be kept by the consecrations of the church, and widows and orphans shall be provided for, as also the poor. That's from Doctrine and Covenants section 83, verse 6. There may exist an actual need for food, clothing, even shelter. Such can be supplied. Almost always there remains a widow in need. Let us remember that after the funeral flowers fade, the well wishes of friends become memories, and the prayers offered and words spoken dim in the corridors of the mind. Those who grieve frequently find themselves alone. Mist is the laughter of children, the commotion of teenagers, and the tender, loving concern of a departed companion. The clock ticks more loudly, time passes more slowly, and four walls do indeed a prison make. We can't help but feel a surge of affection, I think, for President Thomas S. Monson when reading that statement. Now, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Remember, we've been talking about the remnant of Jacob all along as the Savior has moved through this sermon. So, if the sons of Jacob are not consumed, then that would suggest that Zion, which is composed of the sons of Jacob, in other words, those who are a remnant of Israel, will be redeemed and restored. And so that will be the theme as we move through the remainder of this chapter. So coming into verse 7, Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Now think about what the Savior said as he quoted Isaiah in 3rd Nephi chapter 22, just two chapters ago, when he talked about, But for a small moment have I forsaken thee. It's the same tone, and it's the same concept. Malachi is speaking of the way in which, from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances. That's the critical piece uh, when we think about the way in which Israel has lost its favor with the Savior. In fact, it has to do with their regard for ordinances and their ability to offer pleasant offerings to him in righteousness. The same is true for us. So Malachi seems to be speaking of this same concept of forsakenness and barrenness that Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah chapter 54. So there's kind of a dual meaning when we think of a widow in that sense. So after stating this same problem as Isaiah had in the beginning of verse 7, Malachi says, Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. So there's that statement that sounds so similar to draw near unto me and I will draw near unto you. There's a similar concept here suggesting that the Savior is always the constant in this heavenly equation and we are the variable. As soon as we do return unto him, he does return unto us. That is an inevitable result of our returning to him. Now from this, a question naturally follows. And that question is, how then shall we return? And that's exactly what Malachi says here at the end of verse 7. But ye say, wherein shall we return? Well, a critical way to do this is in the way in which we care for the poor and the dispossessed. So this is uh, remaining consistent with what Malachi has been talking about as he has listed his grievances towards Israel that has strayed from God. So now he'll move into this discussion of tithing, the law of tithing. Before we move into this and consider the obvious practical ramifications of tithing and caring for the poor and dispossessed, let's also remember that Malachi had a certain role in his point in history. It was to prepare Israel of his day for the coming of the Savior. Interestingly, it's also to prepare readers of the Old Testament for the unveiling of the Savior as we turn to the book of Matthew. We'll talk a little bit about that later. And he's showing us in the latter days that we too must prepare for the coming of the Lord 
by observing this critical law. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I think it might be appropriate to also think about the law of consecration as we're reading through this. So he says in verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. So quite an indictment, quite a statement that God could be robbed. Theft is a violation of the Ten Commandments. Yet theft from God takes this sin to a whole new level. That is Malachi's implication here as he talks about the sin of withholding tithes and offerings. He will explain then that violation of this law brings a sore curse in the next verse, and then will speak of the way in which the windows of heaven are opened when this law is observed. So we'll come to that in just a moment, uh, but first here's some great commentary from Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide. This is uh, first from Stephen L. Richards in an article called Church and War and Peace, and then a conference report from President Howard W. Hunter. So first, Stephen L. Richards has written, We do not rob God by withholding our gift in the sense that we deprive him of the substance of earth. He always has that substance, never relinquishing it. But we rob him of the satisfaction and the joy that he must feel when his children respond to his mandates and open their hearts in giving and in worship. And now here is President Howard W. Hunter's statement from a 1964 April conference address. He said the words of Malachi in which he accused the people of robbing God bring back to my mind the memories of my class in crimes in law school. Larceny is the unlawful taking and carrying away of things personal with intent to deprive the owner of the same. Embezzlement is defined as the fraudulent appropriation of another's personal property by one to whom it has been entrusted. The distinction between larceny and embezzlement lies in the character of acquiring the possession of the property or money. In larceny, there is an unlawful acquisition of the property, while in embezzlement, the property which belongs to another is acquired lawfully and then fraudulently converted to the possessor's use. In order to memorize these distinctions, I pictured in my mind to represent larceny a masked burglar sneaking about under the cover of darkness, taking that which was not his. To represent the theory of embezzlement, I thought of a non-tithe payer. The Lord's share came into his hands lawfully, but he misappropriated it to his own use. This seems to be the accusation of Malachi. So President Howard W. Hunter is teaching us that Malachi is accusing the people, both in his time and in our day, of embezzlement. Now verse 9, here is the curse that comes from this embezzlement. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me. Or again, to use President Hunter's words, ye have embezzled from me, even this whole nation. So how can this be rectified? Now Malachi will speak to that. Verse 10, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the fields, saith the Lord of hosts. We might also think of the Nephites here. The Savior has appeared to them during a time when there was such breakdown in Nephite civilization. As we came to 3 Nephi chapter 7, things went tribal, The hope of the secret combination that fulminated and formulated at the end of 3 Nephi chapter 6 was that they would install King Jacob in the place of Laconius II as we came to the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 7, and then things broke down entirely. We read at the end of 3 Nephi chapter 7 of the ministry of Nephi that it was ongoing, Uh, but there's no doubt that during this time the church itself was fragmented and did not have its former strength in the midst of such a broken-down government. So it may be that during that time, coming right up to the Savior's arrival, that tithes and offerings were severely compromised. So the Savior is careful to reintroduce this concept to the Nephites as part of his teaching, not only of the restoration in the latter days and the way in which a remnant of Jacob will go among the earth and bring this restoration to the earth, but also uh, for the way in which it will restore them in their broken-down societal state that immediately preceded the coming of the Savior in 3 Nephi chapter 11. 
Let's read some commentary now on what we have taken in so far, particularly in verses 8 through 11. Ogden and Skinner say, These four verses constitute perhaps the greatest discourse we have on the law of tithing. If we hold back our tithes and offerings, Malachi taught, we are robbing God. In another sense, we are also robbing ourselves. We are cheating ourselves out of enormous blessings. Tithing is as indispensable to our salvation as is baptism. During an interview, one young elder told President Ogden about a good man he and his companion were preparing for baptism. But the man has some doubts about tithing. He says he doesn't think he can pay tithing for a while because they are poor and he is about to finance a medical operation for his little daughter. President Ogden and the young missionary talked about the usual things that the investigator needed to understand about the law of tithing, but then the elder said something else. His companion had told the investigator not to worry about it, that the Lord would understand, and that he wouldn't have to pay tithing for a while yet. The president called the companion in, and they talked about refraining from denying the blessings of tithe paying to anyone, because tithes are paid with faith. Here was a beautiful opportunity to teach a prospective member how the Lord blesses us if we'll just demonstrate our faith and keep His commandment. Then we may anticipate the blessings of obedience. Then President Ogden asked the elder, By the way, what is the operation the little girl needs? He answered, To repair her cleft palate. A few weeks earlier, President Ogden had listened to a medical doctor from Utah describe the work of his Worldwide Medical Humanitarian Service Foundation which had recently been organized in Santiago to help those with certain physical abnormalities, especially cleft palates. His name isn't mentioned here, but that may have been Dr. Hershey from Provo. Surely the operation on the prospective member's daughter could be arranged for. The directness and immediacy of the resolution of a need were overwhelming. What an opportunity to teach two missionaries and their investigator that the Lord can indeed provide for those who are willing and obedient. Tithing is a law with a promise. The Lord assures us that when we faithfully observe this law of spiritual economics, He will open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings such that we won't be able to contain them all. And He will rebuke the devourer for our sakes, or keep the wolf from our door. Opening the windows of heaven means revelation and great revelation. Coming to know the Father and the Son is available in the temple. But of course, we have to show our willingness to sacrifice our willingness to obey by paying our tithing before we can enter the Holy Temple. It is highly unlikely that persons who refuse to pay their tithing will honor the even more demanding covenants that are administered in the Temple. Sacrifice really does bring forth the blessings of heaven. So while we may think we are giving up something to God, He actually enriches us with more than we have given. The word sacrifice derives from the Latin sacer, meaning holy or sanctified. When we sacrifice something, it is not so much a deprivation as a sanctification. Is the payment of tithing a loss of the 10%, or is it a consecration, a sanctification of the 10%? The imagery of windows here, I think, is very beautiful, and the connection between Malachi's words and the temple uh, run very deep in these last few chapters of the book of Malachi. It's also of interest that Malachi refers to the storehouse, President Dallin H. Oaks once said, We pay tithing, as the Savior taught, by bringing the tithes into the storehouse. We do this by paying our tithing to our bishop or branch president. We do not pay tithing by contributing to our favorite charities. The contributions we should make to charities come from our own funds, not from the tithes we are commanded to pay to the storehouse of the Lord. When we think about the windows of heaven, and Ogden and Skinner very beautifully talked about the way in which this primarily means revelation, we can still make the mistake of thinking of tithing and the windows of heaven as some sort of a temporal or fiduciary transaction where we provide money to the Lord and to his storehouse, and then the Lord provides us with money in return. Uh, Faith-promoting stories are often told along those lines. While those are not to be discounted and are to be appreciated, uh, It's also true that the windows of heaven mean something so much more. So I'd like to read this from Elder David A. Bednar. And this is from a 2003 October conference talk called Windows of Heaven. Elder Bednar says the imagery of the windows of heaven used by Malachi is most instructive. Windows allow natural light to enter into a building. 
In like manner, spiritual illumination and perspective are poured out through the windows of heaven and into our lives as we honor the law of tithing. For example, a subtle but significant blessing we receive is the spiritual gift of gratitude that enables our appreciation for what we have to constrain desires for what we want. A grateful person is rich in contentment. An ungrateful person suffers in the poverty of endless disappointment. We may need and pray for help to find suitable employment. Eyes and ears of faith are needed, however, to recognize the spiritual gift of enhanced discernment that can empower us to identify job opportunities that many other people might overlook, or the blessing of greater personal determination to search harder and longer for a position than other people may be willing or able to do. We might want and expect a job offer, but the blessing that comes to us through heavenly windows may be greater capacity to act and change our own circumstances rather than expecting our circumstances to be changed by someone or something else. We may appropriately desire and work to receive a pay raise in our employment to better provide the necessities of life. Eyes and ears of faith are required, however, to notice in us an increased spiritual and temporal capacity to do more with less, a keener ability to prioritize and simplify, and an enhanced ability to take proper care of the material possessions we have already acquired. We might want and expect a larger paycheck, but the blessing that comes to us through heavenly windows may be greater capacity to change our own circumstances rather than expecting our circumstances to be changed by someone or something else. The stripling warriors in the Book of Mormon prayed earnestly that God would strengthen and deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. Interestingly, the answers to these prayers did not produce additional weapons or an increased number of troops. Instead, God granted these faithful warriors assurance that he would deliver them, peace to their souls, and great faith and hope for their deliverance in him. Thus, the sons of Helaman did take courage, were fixed with a determination to conquer, and did go forth with all of their might against the Lamanites. Assurance, peace, faith, and hope initially might not seem like the blessings warriors in battle might want, but they were precisely the blessings these valiant young men needed to press forward and prevail physically and spiritually. Sometimes we may ask God for success and he gives us physical and mental stamina. We might plead for prosperity and we receive enlarged perspective and increased patience, or we petition for growth and are blessed with the gift of grace. He may bestow upon us conviction and confidence as we strive to achieve worthy goals, and when we plead for relief from physical, mental, and spiritual difficulties, he may increase our resolve and resilience. I promise that as you and I observe and keep the law of tithing, indeed the windows of heaven will be opened and spiritual and temporal blessings will be poured out such that there shall not be room enough to receive them. Now, finally, before leaving this verse, we also see the phrase, rebuke the devourer. President Gordon B. Hinckley said of that particular phrase, The Lord has promised that he will rebuke the devourer for our sakes. May not that rebuke of the devourer apply to various of our personal efforts and concerns? There is the great blessing of wisdom, of knowledge, even hidden treasures of knowledge. We are promised that ours shall be a delightsome land if we will walk in obedience to this law. I can interpret the word land as people, that those who walk in obedience shall be a delightsome people. What a marvelous condition to be a delightsome people whom others would describe as blessed. So Malachi's promises that are flowing forth from the payment of tithes continue into verse 12 when he says, And all nations shall call you blessed. And of course, this is what President Hinckley was just speaking of. For ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. So according to President Hinckley, we can think of a delightsome land as a delightsome people. Well, before moving into the final verses of this chapter, here are a few more beautiful pieces of commentary on the law of tithing. It's quite a lot of commentary on this subject, uh, and there is some overlap in the teachings that are presented here compared to what we've just read but they certainly do reinforce one another, and there are some other shades of insight that will come from this. So first this from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. Those who live the law of tithing show their faith in God. Obedience to this law brings the blessings stated in 3 Nephi chapter 24, 10 through 12, or of course Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles 
shared five reasons why every member of the church in any kind of circumstance should obey the law of tithing. I suggest five reasons, he says, why all of us, rich or poor, longtime member or newest convert, should faithfully pay our tithes and offerings. First, do so for the sake of your children. Teach your children that many of the blessings of the church are available to them because you and they give tithes and offerings to the church. Second, pay your tithing to rightfully claim the blessings promised those who do so. Third, pay your tithing as a declaration that possession of material goods and the accumulation of worldly wealth are not the uppermost goals of your existence. Fourth, pay your tithes and offerings out of honesty and integrity because they are God's rightful due. This leads to a fifth reason to pay our tithes and offerings. We should pay them as a personal expression of love to a generous and merciful Father in heaven. Through his grace, God has dealt bread to the hungry and clothing to the poor. At various times in our lives, that will include all of us, either temporally or spiritually. President Harold B. Lee described one of the blessings we can receive from paying tithing. He said the promise following obedience to this principle is that the windows of heaven would be open and blessings would be poured out that we would hardly be able to contain. The opening of the windows of heaven, of course, means revelation from God to him who is willing thus to sacrifice. President Heber J. Grant testified that God will bless those who obey the law of tithing with increased wisdom. He said, I bear witness, and I know that the witness I bear is true, that the men and the women who have been absolutely honest with God, who have paid their tithing, God has given them wisdom whereby they have been able to utilize the remaining nine-tenths, and it has been of greater value to them, and they have accomplished more with it than they would if they had not been honest with the Lord. Elder Dallin H. Oaks addressed the statement some people give when faced with whether or not they will be obedient to the commandment to pay tithing. Some people say, I cannot afford to pay tithing. Those who place their faith in the Lord's promises say, I can't afford not to pay tithing. Some time ago, I was speaking to a meeting of church leaders in a country outside of North America. As I spoke about tithing, I found myself saying something I had not intended to say. I told them the Lord was grieved that only a small fraction of the members in their nations relied on the Lord's promises and paid a full tithing. I warned that the Lord would withhold material and spiritual blessings when his covenant children were not keeping this vital commandment. I hope those leaders taught that principle to the members of the stakes and districts in their countries. The law of tithing and the promise of blessings to those who live it apply to the people of the Lord in every nation. I hope our members will qualify for the blessings of the Lord by paying a full tithing. Now as we move into verse 13, we'll see a similar formula to what we read before, where there's an accusation and then a question that follows the accusation. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, in verse 13. Yet ye say, so before it was yet ye say, wherein have we robbed God? Here it is, yet ye say, what have we spoken against thee? And now here's the answer in verse 14. Ye have said it is vain to serve God, and what doth it profit that we have kept his ordinances, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? In other words, you're guilty of taking the ordinances of the Lord's house lightly. This too could have applied to many of the Nephites who were assembled before the Savior at this time. It certainly applied to those people that were contemporary to Malachi, and it certainly can apply to us today. Elder Neely Maxwell has written in his book Men and Women of Christ, The fact that the wicked often seem to profit and do very well in this life may fill us with questions. Ye have said it is vain to serve God. So that's where Elder Maxwell is pulling that concept uh, when Malachi said it's vain to serve God. In other words, it's fruitless to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Yet it is not true that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. And that's out of Job chapter 20, verse 5. The Lord himself confirmed that those who follow the ways of man have joy in the works but for a season. So again, Elder Maxwell is addressing that specific idea that it is vain or fruitless to serve God, that perhaps no immediate tangible rewards could be seen from doing so by at least those who do not believe. That is certainly a problem that exists today. Malachi continues with this line of thinking in verse 15 by saying, And now we call the proud happy. 
Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Again, as Elder Maxwell has just addressed, we know that that is not ultimately true and that the task that lies before us as covenant Israel is to wait upon the Lord. And so in verse 16, Malachi discusses fearing the Lord. He says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. So think about the Savior and the way that he is discussing the matter of the record and of record keeping with Nephi and the disciples and the critical nature of having an accurate book of remembrance. He's been so careful uh, to make sure that it has the details. In other words, that the scriptures have the details that they need. So Malachi is saying that, no, sometimes the rewards do not look immediate for those who are faithful to God. But those that fear him, those that wait upon him, do continue to speak often one to another, and the Lord continues to hearken to them and hear them, and the scriptures are evidence of this fact. Now, verse 17, and they shall be mine. So in this process, these who are so faithful become mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. I personally love the language of this verse. And think that this final statement, I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him, cannot help but conjure thoughts and images of a loving father who has spared his son to condescend and come to earth and to submit to all that it was that he submitted to. In other words, Malachi seems to be talking about the father. Any father that has had to spare his own son in the service of the Lord has a deeper understanding of this concept. I spoke earlier of this phrase, make up my jewels, when we went through the flyover summary of this chapter and related it to Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 54, where he talked about gates of carbuncles and sapphires and precious stones. Stones and jewels have a very interesting role in Scripture. They're mentioned at the very end of the book of Revelation, but in the very early parts of the Old Testament, they're mentioned as well. There's the altar that... uh, Adam knelt before. There's the stone that Jacob laid his head upon when he had a vision. There, of course, is the Urim and Thummim. There are the stones and the ephod of the priest. The stones that are referred to in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 54, that we just recently read in 3 Nephi chapter 22, seem to relate most closely to the stones of the heavenly city in New Jerusalem. Here the Savior seems to be referring to each of his children individually as jewels. Jewels that are so precious to him that he's willing to sacrifice his own son. So in that way, John chapter 3 verse 16 has a kinship with Malachi chapter 3 verse 17. I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He is only justified in doing so if those whom he saves are as precious to him as jewels. I'll read some commentary on this in just a moment, but another thing I'd like to point out about jewels is something that my mission president once pointed out to me, which is that jewels have many facets, and we might think of the way in which sometimes in life some facets are exposed while others are not, and we will go through periods of growth when our shiny facets have to be subsumed or rotated, uh, and instead the light is shown upon less shiny facets while they are polished and worked upon. So now moving back to some commentary from Ogden and Skinner as they uh, discuss what has been said by Malachi in verses 14 through 17. Some will complain, trying to serve God in this world is all in vain. What good has it done us to keep his ordinances and walk soberly before him? The wicked seem to prosper and the righteous just continue to suffer, but their reward is coming. The Lord remonstrates, a book of remembrance is being kept, and the ones who have thought upon my name will be included in it, and they shall be mine, in that day when I make up my jewels. The English word jewels is in Hebrew, sagula, and it is the same term elsewhere translated as peculiar, as in peculiar people. That phrase first shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. Sagula means valued property or peculiar treasure. 
Indeed, the saints or holy ones of God are his jewels, his valued property or treasure. When he comes to reign, they, his jewels or special property, will be with him. The Institute Manual says, How do we become one of the Lord's jewels? A jewel is a precious stone, measured by its intrinsic and extrinsic value in the marketplace. Malachi and other prophets used the imagery of jewels symbolically to refer to people who feared the Lord, those who show respect for him, keep his ordinances, and have their names in a book of remembrance. Thus, to become one of the Lord's jewels, you must faithfully keep the commandments associated with every ordinance, regardless of worldly pressure. By doing this, you show that you love the Lord, and your name will be recorded in the book of remembrance. Well, now we come to the very final verse of this chapter, which says, Then shall ye return. So there's a sequential sense once again with the use of the word then. Then shall ye return, and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. And here it seems that the word serving God, or serveth God, is apprehended in the fullest sense, meaning that it is done uh, when we become his through covenant and when we follow the requirements of a covenant relationship with him. And as we do so, the rewards are so great that there will not be room enough to receive them. Well, this completes the Savior's quotation of Malachi chapter 3 then, and this is the total of 3 Nephi chapter 24. As we move into 3 Nephi chapter 25, the Savior will quote Malachi chapter 4. That will bring him to the end of his sermon, or at least the part of this morrow sermon that Mormon has included will come to discover in 3 Nephi chapter 26 that the Savior taught far more and that Mormon has only included the lesser part of his teachings. So we savor every morsel that comes to us in this 3 Nephi account. And thankfully, there is still much more to come as we progress through these chapters. So for now, this brings us to the end of 3 Nephi chapter 24. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text. A text that is endlessly rich with detail, and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day. Keep in touch, and thank you for listening.